0: Have you ever known someone who has a hobby horse? Every time you see them, the conversation always goes back to that thing. And it becomes impossible to have a real conversation with them because every time you try to talk to them, the conversation becomes dominated by that thing. Eventually, you get to the point where you feel as though you don't even know them anymore because they have no personality or identity besides that thing. Perhaps it's a theological topic, or an intense hatred of the former president, or their fanatical love for CrossFit. If you found yourself thinking, I don't even know that guy's last name, but I know all of his opinions about, fill in the blank. Now, any church that has people from more than one culture will have questions and conflicts about these cultures and practices, and things that the Apostle Paul calls in verse 1, opinions. Because the church at Rome was made up of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, they had these types of issues. The Bible is a very realistic book. It is presented to us, written by sinful people, who do not hide their own sins, and it's written to us as sinful people who have sins which are not hidden from ourselves and others. Because of this, these different cultures that the church at Rome was made up of, both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians came into the church with different cultural traditions, expectations, and opinions. Today's message, titled The Christian's Freedom, will consider verses 1 through 12, and we'll consider the first two major themes addressed in this text, which are food and drink and days and holidays. So, we've got food and drink and days and holidays, but we're adding a third point, which is motivation and application. Motivation and application. So, Point one is the Christian's freedom, food and drink. Point two is the Christian's freedom, days and holidays. And point three is the Christian's freedom, motivation and application. I was giving you those up front, so hopefully you can follow along a little better. Now, we also need to consider some definitions before we really get going. Definitions. Number one, you need to know the word adiaphora. Adiaphora. So that is spelled A-D-I-A, adiaphora. Phora, adiaphora. Secondly, you need to know the terms from our text, strong and weak. And then, thirdly, I was trying to come up with a, an alternate term because I'm. If you Google this, I'm not crazy about where it's going to take you, but nevertheless, theological triage, theological triage. So I want you to understand these three terms as we consider today's message. First, adiaphora. According to the dictionary website, this comes, number one, from Stoic philosophy. It means a matter having no mer- no moral merit or demerit. A matter that has no moral merit or demerit. Something that is not good or bad. It's, it's neutral. The second definition, it's more of a biblical definition, but from the same website. It says, number two, A religious, ceremonial, or ritual observation that is held to be an affair of the individual conscience because it is neither forbidden nor commanded by the scriptures. A religious, ceremonial, or ritual observance that is held to be a matter of the conscience because it is neither forbidden nor commanded by the scriptures. I believe the literal translation of the word means things indifferent, adiaphra, things indifferent, things that don't matter. So that's first. Secondly, I want you to understand the terms strong and weak. In our text here, strong is used to describe those whose consciences were not easily offended. Those whose consciences were not easily offended. And the weak are those whose consciences are easily offended. It's helpful to just state that up front in case over the course of the next um, number of minutes I Don't make that explicitly clear. I want to make it explicitly clear up front because for much of my life, I thought of it in the opposite ways. So I want you to understand up front, the strong the strong believer in Romans chapter 14 is the one who is not easily offended and the weak is the one who is easily offended. Third, I want you to understand the concept of theological triage. Triage is this medical concept of, uh, you know, Imagine a battlefield, and you've got a hundred wounded soldiers. And um, well, let's just do the front row here. So Jaren has his right arm blown off. <laughs> Anaïs, she uh, she got cut in her ear. And uh, Michaela, welcome back. It's great to see you. Uh, do you want a, a severe or less severe uh, wound? <laughs> Se- severe wound. Uh, she got she got shot in the chest. And then uh, Amarie, she, um, she broke her toe. And um, Brittany, let's see, do you want severe or not severe? Uh, yes. Yeah, so she, she stepped on a landmine and lost both her legs. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there, there's a degree of, of severity of these wounds that each person has received. Now, Jaron, he lost his arm. That's, that's a big deal. But it's not as big of a deal as Michaela's gunshot wound to the chest. Now, Anais, with her, she lost half her ear, like, she'll be okay. We can just put some tape on it and deal with it later. Now, that's the concept of triage. It's like, oh, this person's bleeding out. We're going to deal with that right now. Oh, this other person, okay, we'll take care of your broken, broken toe later, whoever has the broken toe. We'll deal with that later, Amarie. But the one who lost both their legs, like that's a lot of blood loss. We got to deal with that right now. That's the concept behind theological triage. And it's helpful to understand that this is broadly divided into three categories. So there are items which are first order issues, second order issues, and third order issues. Now, if you Google theological triage, you'll get articles popping up about Al Mohler Elmuller is kind of credited with coining the term. He probably coined the term, but the concept goes back much much further than him. First order issues are issues that you have to believe to be a Christian. If you deny this doctrine, you're not a Christian. You're following some other religion. For example, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, substitutionary atonement. Uh, There's a handful of these. These are core essentials of the faith. If you don't believe these, you might call yourself a Christian, but you're not. You're not a Christian. Second order issues are things that you need to believe to be a member of this particular church. Now, different churches have different takes on that. Some churches have their, their proverbial doors as wide as possible. So they would say, uh, I have good friends who pastor churches like this. They say, if, if you can be a member of heaven, you can be a member of our church. So first order issues are the only things that we Draw our lines about um, that 's not what we do here. We have uh, a, a larger statement of faith, and we expect the members of the church to broadly speaking agree with the whole thing now obviously, there can be nuanced views and where you say actually on the sabbath i 'm not so sure that 's fine we can we can work with that but second order issues tend to be things along the lines of modes of baptism, um, views like kind of nuanced views on spiritual gifts. Uh, views on eschatology. These are things that you can have different views on and still be a member of the church. You're definitely still a Christian, even if you are believing in infant baptism or things like that. Your grandkids probably won't be, but you might still be. Um, So those are second order issues that a church needs to have its own view on, and they draw their lines, and that's what makes a church a church, is those agreed-upon doctrines. And then third-order issues are issues that you can have differing views on within the church. Sorry, I just included eschatology. Within this church, we have like, you know, 18 different views on eschatology. So third-order issues—I messed that whole point too up—third-order issues are issues that you can have different views on and still be within the church. So that's where things like some some views of spiritual gifts would come in. In our church, we're obviously a cessationist church, but there's even a range within that. Um, there's all kinds of practical matters that people have different views on, and we'll get into that at, towards the end of the message. But third-level issues are, are issues that really are just up to the individual person. And we need to be careful about not wrongly or falsely binding someone's conscience on something that Scripture has not Bound their conscience on, So that's an overview, a, a poor overview of theological triage. So without further ado, let's begin with them, point number one, the Christian's freedom, food and drink, food and drink. Looking at Romans 14, one through four, it says, "'As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, "'but not to quarrel over opinions. "'One person believes he may eat anything, "'while the weak person eats only vegetables.'" Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So we have the situation at hand. The situation is you've got Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in the same church. This is God's plan. This is God's design. There is one church. It is not the... Gentile church and the Jewish church. It was God's plan in the first century and it's God's plan today as well. We ought to have both Jewish believers and Gentile believers worshiping together in the same assembly on the same day. We should not be divided over the sort of issues that are addressed in this text. But in the first century, the church at Rome had these two different groups. The second thing you have to recognize is the covenantal shift. A massive change has taken place in the course of biblical and theological history. This is now the new covenant. They're not under the old covenant. They're not under the Mosaic covenant. Jesus has died. He lived, he died, and he rose again. Jesus inaugurated the new covenant with his blood. They as well as we are not under the old covenant. Dietary restrictions and ceremonial laws have been fulfilled in Christ. According to Ephesians 2, 14 and 15, these elements of the law have been abolished by Christ. You need to beware of any system that emphasizes Old Testament priority, Old Covenant priority over New Testament, New Covenant priority. This is one of the classic hallmarks of Reformed Baptist thought is that we have New Testament priority over the Old Testament. We interpret the old with the new. Some churches, some approaches to theology will say, no, we actually interpret the new with the old. They might not say it that clearly, but sometimes they do talk about it that clearly in seminary. Also, further. Beware of any system that makes Old Testament Judaism the pinnacle of eschatological development. Beware of any system that makes Old Testament Judaism the pinnacle of eschatological development. I wasn't sure if I wanted to get in on this, and I'm trying to end at 1145, but there are two warring sides in eschatology that have gone so far in opposite directions they've met in the middle on the other side of the circle. And they bear tremendous similarities. But we must also acknowledge that in those systems, which I'm talking about both um, post mill reconstructionist theonomy and dispensationalism, both of these views elevate Old Testament Israel Judaism as the be all end all. And they meet around on the backside saying, hey, it's all about the law. Now, not all interpretations of those systems do that, but it is Fairly common. And it creates a certain culture in the church. We need to be careful about a return to Judaism. We need to resist that with everything in us. That is not where God is taking the narrative of redemption. That is not the direction that the Bible is going. That's not the arc of salvation history. We need to be careful about that, either, in both America and as a church. As I said in the original main point, that Old Testament Judaism is not the pinnacle of eschatological development. Practically speaking, a misapplication of the biblical covenants leads some to feel that their consciences are bound by Old Testament laws which have been fulfilled. Old Testament laws which have been abolished. The dietary laws are one of those examples. Now, I had these impulses as I was reading through this to try and uh, thinking through, wait, what what are the implications of this? I did check, and from what I understand, Rushdani did hold to the dietary requirements of the Old Testament. So one of the founders of the theonomy movement, he was like, no, sorry, you can't eat the shellfish. Now I don't know how consistently he applied that, but I would warn you to be very careful about anything like that. It will result in a legalistic environment. The Christian is free to eat or not eat whatever foods they encounter. This is the purpose or sub subpurpose of Peter's vision in Acts ten. The Lord used this vision in Acts 10 and saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat with all different types of animals to make the point about Gentile inclusion in the church. The church is not bound by Old Testament dietary laws. If you want to refrain from eating pork, that's fine. You can do that. But don't do it. If you're a Christian, don't do it because of theology. And certainly don't put those stipulations on others. And don't judge others for not holding to your dietary stipulations. Now, the same goes for drink. It's just mentioned later on in the later part of of Romans chapter 14, but that still falls under this same category. Now, there are different views on why this food is, is addressed here. Whether the food that's mentioned in the first half of Romans 14 is food that's been offered to idols or whether it's food that's prohibited by Old Testament law. But I think either side makes the same point. Whether we're talking about meat offered to idols, the strong in the faith can eat it. And it doesn't matter, it's irrelevant. But the weak one in the faith, it's sinful for them because they believe it's sinful. Both apply. So that's point number one, the Christian's freedom, food and drink. You are free to eat or not eat. You are free to drink or not drink. Secondly, the Christian's freedom, days and holidays. So I recognize holidays and days are part of the same. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. What's happening here? What's happening in our text? Well, the Jewish culture, the Jewish system, has a lot of holidays, a lot of unique holidays that they celebrate, and they're very important, very strongly part of their culture and their tradition. Um, And the greatest of these is the Sabbath, the Sabbath. Sabbath starts Friday at 6 p.m. and goes till Saturday at 6 p.m. And that's Shabbat. And it's got all these strict traditions and rules associated with it. Some Jewish Christians felt the need to honor that and to abide by that. Gentile Christians didn't. Gentile Christians were not the least bit interested in stopping everything and just kind of hanging out for the next 24 hours. They say, no, I've got business to do. I've got the work to attend to. I've got cattle to milk. I've got lots of problems that need solved. So we have Jewish regular days and Jewish holidays and the Sabbath. But there's also application to this for Christian holidays. Whether you're kind of a low church Christian or you're in the high church stuff and you believe in the church calendar and you're going to, uh, so this is Trinity Sunday. Or this is, you know, you know, where days have all these sorts of special significance. There are also American holidays. Today happens to be one. Today is both a church holiday and an American holiday on multiple levels. But let me just say first that few things are more plainly and obviously unbiblical than the Christian whose hobby horse is criticizing another Christian's celebration of Christmas. If you've ever been in a church like that or you've ever met someone who the first thing you meet with them is like, hey, do you celebrate Christmas? Now, hopefully it's not the first thing they say, but I have met them where, like, before I got to their last name, they were hammering me about Christmas. That's wrong. Now, if you don't want to celebrate Christmas, I mean, Lord bless you, and that's up to you. But you don't have biblical grounds to criticize someone else celebrating Christmas. And you say, oh, well, it comes from these pagan traditions. And have you read the book of Jeremiah? Jeremiah talks. So you have these reasons within your own mind, but I want you to recognize that most everybody else doesn't. Most everybody else reads their scripture and their theology differently to say, actually, it's fine. It doesn't matter. The Christian's freedom, days and holidays, you are free. If you, if you want to celebrate Jewish holidays, you can. You can do that. If you want to celebrate every holiday that America has, you can do that. If you say, you know what, I'm just going to do like big three, that's fine too. But all that you do, you should be observing in honor of the Lord. You eat, you eat in honor of the Lord. Because you're giving thanks to God. And the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You say, I'm not going to participate in this because I believe it honors the Lord more to not participate. These are deeply held convictions in the first century audience. And so it should be for you if you are taking one side or another on any particular issue. That's point two. Now, point three. We'll spend the rest of our time here. The Christian's freedom, motivation and application. What is the motivation for the Christian freedom? And what is the application for the Christian's freedom? So first, the motivation. Well, let me read the text, verses 7 through 12. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. That word for that starts the sentence, that is, that's the word because. Here's why. This is the reason why. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, for this purpose, Christ died and lived again so that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. First, the motivation. Why do we do this? It's because we are the Lord's. The end of verse 8. We belong to Christ. That's why. We are the Lord's. And beyond that, we will be judged by God. Now, we are the Lord's. We belong to Christ, and we belong to Christ by faith. That's the message of Romans that he's been driving at, is that we are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. We receive the righteousness of Christ gifted to us, and we take it, we take hold of it by faith, by trusting. Not by ritual, not by our obedience, not by following dietary restrictions or ceremonial laws, or judicial laws for that matter, or even the moral laws. We do not take hold of the righteousness of God by any means other than by faith in Christ. Christ is the one who earned obedience. He was the one who fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf, and he is the one who has given that gift righteousness to us, that alien righteousness that Martin Luther talked about so much. He credits that to our account. Because we have trusted in him, we are saved. We are born again. We are brought into the family of God, and we belong to Christ. This is the motivation for this whole thing. Verse 7, 8, and nine, none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. We live, we live for the Lord. We die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. You hear echoes in this of Paul's words saying, to live is Christ, to die is gain. No matter what happens in my life, my purpose, my agenda is to honor Christ. So our motivation for all of our decisions, in light of our freedom that we have as a Christian, as one who is free to choose to do this or to do that. Our motivation is Jesus owns me. I belong to him. And I'm trusting in him. It's by faith that I am forgiven. And so it's by faith that I live. And because of that, I'm free. I can do this thing or not do this thing. Now, application. Verses 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So the the primary driving application in this text is that we must be patient with one another. We must be patient with one another. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? Think about this in your family, if you had siblings. Your literal brother. I had two brothers. Did you ever have a moment where you despised your brother? He's doing a thing that's not wrong, but man, it sure annoys you. And you sure wish he would stop doing that thing. Why? Because you don't like it. As a child, you don't have some deep spiritual reason for why you want him to stop humming. But you just wish he would cut it out. Why? Because you don't like it. We're supposed to be patient with one another. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? So let me ask you a few questions. Number one, since you became reformed, if you are reformed, or since you became a discerning Christian, if you would consider yourself a discerning Christian, or since you became a member of this church or started attending this church or what, however you want to preface that, have you ever stopped to consider or to ask yourself, maybe I'm too harsh. Maybe I'm too critical. Have you ever asked yourself that? Now, if you're still on the, quote, outside looking in, this is probably not where you need to be. The air that we breathe, the culture that we're in, the water that we swim in as a society, in some respects, is a go-along-to-get-along mindset. And the religion of Judge not is the bread and butter of our culture. So if you still have one foot outside the church and one foot in the church— where one foot is desiring the approval of the world and the other is desiring the approval of this particular church, you probably need to get some things sorted out for yourself before you say, you know what, I'm taking too much of a stand. But, number one, if you're a Reformed, or number two, if you're a member of this church, or number three, you're a discerning Christian, have you ever stopped to consider the Scripture's instruction not to pass judgment? on your brothers. Cuz it becomes very easy to get on this critical train where we're just critical of everything. And you become so critical you're like, "All right, well, I've I've got I've got my Bible and it's the ESV and the ESV is the right one and I am 1689 and that's the right confession." And I hold to historic premillennialism, which is the right eschatology. And I am a cessationist, which is the right view on pneumatology. And I am a... uh, I went to this school, which is the right school. And I didn't go to that school, which is the wrong school. And you you just start building up these things that you are convinced of, fully convinced in your mind, were the right decision and the right position. And eventually you get this stack that's so high of these requirements, that nobody else is right but you, nobody else is really a biblical Christian except you, you're not going to be friends with anybody except yourself. That's the question that I want to push back on to ask. Have you ever considered that maybe you're too judgmental? Now let me make this a little more practical. What are some topics that you feel strongly about? What are some topics that people feel strongly about? Maybe not you, but someone else. Bible translation. Theological systems and biblical theological meta narratives. If you don't know what that means don't worry about it. Politics. Education. Public, private, homeschool. College versus trade school versus entrepreneurship. Holidays, Jewish holidays, church holidays, PBC holidays, we have a holiday. Um, American holidays, foods, drink, religious reasons, health reasons, preferences, taste, culture, the quantity of food, the frequency of food, the time of food. You ever met someone who was like sinful to not eat breakfast? Approaches to parenting. Parenting such as number of children, things to do or not to do for your children or with your children. Entertainment, to own a TV or not own a TV, to allow video games or not, to go to the movies, to see shows. What rating is acceptable? Dancing. I was going to have a whole SBC little thing about dancing. Like, you know why drinking is sin? Because drinking might lead to dancing. smoking. Did you know that R.C. Sproul smokes cigarettes like a chimney? When he arrived at MacArthur's church, he was supposed to preach. He was running late and they were looking for him. It was like the service is going and they're like, where's R.C.? So J. Mac goes out back and he finds R.C. Sproul there smoking his cigarette. He puts it out on the tire of the car and says, hey, do you have a Bible? <laughs> like he just showed up to church. Like I need to borrow a Bible so I can preach. But let me ask you that, like if if someone were like an elder in our church, would they be getting a lot of like harsh treatment from you if they had the same interests or hobbies as one of your preacher heroes? (laughs) Thank you, Luca. Uh, Another one would be hairstyles. Now, this is important because it connects to the theological stuff and the covenant stuff. In the old covenant, there were some stipulations about hair. New Testament, very broad, very simple. Paul just says men should not have long hair, which is an allusion to gender roles and looking like a woman. But beyond that, like we're not under these specific things. But I have definitely been around people who felt very strongly about length, color, cut, style, et cetera, both for men and women. Sometimes people in the past felt very strongly about things like makeup, especially certain types of churches. In more Wesleyan, Pentecostal-type churches, these are a big deal. Playing games, card games, is, is a, a deck of cards, is that the devil's Bible? <laughs> Google it. Look it up. Some people will say that. Or is it just a thing? Is it just an object that has no meaning in and of itself? What about tattoos? What about cosmetic surgery? Like, hey, you want to have this procedure done, you got too many wrinkles in your forehead or whatever? Like, is that sinful to do that? What about dress and clothing? Oh, here's a fun one swimming and swimming slash mixed swimming slash swimsuits. Another one house rules. If you wear uh, shoes inside the house. I've been around people who it's like a matter of morality. <laughs> like, where I was hosting a Bible study and someone else in the Bible study went around and forced everyone else to take their shoes off. And I was like, it's my house. What time you go to bed, sometimes people attach moral significance to a certain hour. Options are endless with your house rules and attaching spirituality to certain applications. And my last one, I'll stop, is recycling. (laughs) How You call yourself a Christian and you don't recycle? And I replied and I said, yes, because I watched The Garbage Man. And I saw that they threw everything in the same bin. And I've read articles, and I know that they they don't actually... The division is just for show. When it gets to the landfill, it all goes in the same spot. And it's probably bad, but that's the way it is. So therefore, I'm not going to feel guilty for not recycling. Now, let me say this, because I've got one minute before I said I was going to be done. How you deal with these issues and many others determine, in large part, how how large or small your church will be. What your approach is to these matters, which I would consider most of them are adiaphora. I would argue politics is not. Politics is about morality, and the Bible teaches us on morality, stealing, murder, et cetera, et cetera. But the way you deal with most of these issues determines how many people feel like they can be a part of this or not. Because they might say, well, I can sign on to most of these things, but I'm just, you know, I don't really like feeling guilty because I have a pumpkin on my front doorstep. And the pastor came over and visited me, and the first thing he did was criticize me for having a pumpkin on the front step of my house. That type of person just isn't going to stick around. That's not what happens. This also determines not only how large or small your church will be, but it also determines whether or not you have any friends. Now, the church, uh, according to one commentator, the church does not exist to be a judiciary body to make pronouncements on issues that in the long run will prove to be of no real consequence. These things are adiaphora, things that do not really matter, close quote. Now, further, you must recognize it is not a sign of spiritual maturity. This is the strong strong versus weak thing. It is not a mark of spiritual maturity to see how difficult you can be or how difficult you can make everyone else's life. That doesn't make you more godly because you're impossible to live with. Now, this whole thing is driven and fueled and motivated by the doctrine of justification by faith. Because we are justified by faith, by the righteousness of Christ given to us, gifted to us, not on any of our works, this should motivate us to have a category in our minds for things that it's just okay to live and let live with. You are saved by faith alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. Now, there are lots of second-order issues which are important eschatology, ecclesiology, angelology, spiritual gifts, some are third order issues. These all matter and they're important, but you are not saved by your ecclesiology. You're not saved by grace through faith in your particular view of angelology or spiritual gifts. This does not mean that these issues don't matter because they do but they must compel us to more careful thinking and more gracious acting towards those who differ from us about our own opinions. The stronger believer must have patience towards the weaker brother, who at times can be a bit impossible due to their excessive hang-ups over every little thing, and the weaker believer must develop self-control over their temptation to call everything and everyone a false Christian who doesn't share identical hang-ups with them over every little thing justification by faith alone and Christ alone is able to deal with and address these temptations. Now, one final note. Our objective and our goal is not to aim for a, quote, mere Christianity. That's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is not to see how low we can lower the bar. The purpose of the church is to make disciples and to teach them all things that Christ has commanded. Therefore, It's a comprehensive worldview. It's an all-of-life worldview which we are aiming to teach. The goal is not to see how little you must believe in order to make it into heaven. The goal is not to see how close we can make it to the fire and still escape the fire. Yet, we must have intellectual honesty to admit that there are certain things that have no bearing whatsoever on your distance from the fire. When we fail to do that, When we fail to distinguish, to rightly divide the word of truth, we slander Christ and his gospel. In other words, when everything is a gospel issue, nothing is a gospel issue. When everything is a gospel issue, we lie about the gospel and we lie about Christ. When we suggest to people that Christ is going to reject them because they didn't interpret Particular nuance of theology, exactly the way you interpret it. We've created another gospel. We've invented a false way of salvation. Let's close in prayer. God in heaven, we pray that you would take these, these words and help us to walk in this reality that we are free in Christ. We are free in Christ to eat or to not eat, to drink or to not drink, to celebrate a day or not celebrate a day. But at the same time, we are compelled to seek to grow in our knowledge of you and our obedience to you. Help us to be gracious people that are kind towards others, recognizing that Christ was kind, he was humble, he was meek, But at the same time, he reserved his strongest words for those who had an outward show of religion but did not truly possess the inward reality. I pray for those who are not in Christ today, those who are not saved, that they would trust in him and so be born again. I pray that the aroma of this congregation, the aroma and the atmosphere in this church would be that of a church that is marked by grace. Grace. By a steadfast hold of Christ because he holds on to us. I pray that you'd help us in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.